this week on the 10A Podcast for the sake of mental health with Phil Klein. We don't do enough to take care of each other and take care of ourselves. When I got on, the culture was, you know, suck it up, kid. That whole mindset has got to change where you ask for help, but the first thing they do is drug test you and take you off the street or take away your gun. So if you're not talking about it and not seeking help when it's, when it's a small problem, you know, when it becomes a big problem, it's almost too late at that point. Had he not taken himself out, that law is probably not there. And, you know, all of a sudden the critical incident stress team is coming down and you know, they're going to talk to us and make sure we're okay. And that's great. We had a big incident. You know, but what about the 50 or 60 calls we ran before that one? that nobody really cared about. You shouldn't lose your mental health because of the career that you chose. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome one, welcome all, welcome to the 108 podcast. This is episode 324. Today's episode is called For the Sake of Mental Health with Mr. Phil Klein. He is the host of Stories from the Road podcast. He is a man with an amazing resume to boot. This episode, we really focus on the importance of peer support in the realm of first responders. As some of you may know, some may not, I am a member of my department's peer support team. And as often, I advocate on this platform the need to be there for each other is something that I feel and believe into my core as a being. But before we get too deep into the woods into our talk about the importance of peer support, let's go ahead and support our peers and talk about our sponsors. Listen, it's no surprise to anyone that law enforcement agencies suck at getting the word out to their citizens they serve. Whether it's debriefing a critical incident or educating the public about various aspects of law enforcement, it takes a special skill set that too many in law enforcement don't have. In this ever-changing world of social media, do you, your agency, and your community a favor and check out TOC Public Relations, a company ran by former law enforcement to help you get your message out in an appropriate and professional way. Check them out on social media as well as TOCPublicRelations.com. Let me tell you something you already know. Living a life in public service is a life of sacrifice, but you cannot serve the community or back your partner up if you're not physically able to do so. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, more than 40% of law enforcement officers are obese. Other studies have found that police officers are 25% more likely to die from weight-related disorders like cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and even some cancers. Why continue to be a liability to your partners, your loved ones, your community, and yourself? Contact the folks at fit.responders and get your fight back. And guys, I also want to tell you about our sponsor, Jiu-Jitsu 5.0. They just came out with the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app. It is the ultimate training tool for all law enforcement. Members of the app get on-demand access to a huge library of techniques for the streets, grappling-based workouts, yoga, and a monthly nutrition plan. They also have 24-hour, 7-day-a-week access to Jason, the founder of Jiu-Jitsu 5.0, for personalized training assistance. So... Go to the app store of your choosing and download the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app today. It's available for Android as well as Apple, so get on it now. And last but not least, this episode is brought to you by Thin Vine Wines. Thin Vine Wines is a mission-driven wine company that proudly backs first responders and the military. With a background in law enforcement, their support for police, dispatch, fire, and the military is unwavering. 
Thin Vine Wines donates $2 from every bottle sold to law enforcement and military-driven nonprofits. Making awesome wine is the vehicle. Making wine with a purpose is the mission. Check out their social medias at Thin Vine Wines on Instagram and Facebook and order online at thinvine.wine using the code 108TEN, the number 8, for $10 off two or more bottles of wine. How many of you have a peer support team built into your agency? Have you used it? Do you trust the people that are on the team? If you answered no to any of those questions, the most important question for me is to ask why. In Florida, State Statute Chapter 111, Section 9 reads, Peer Support for First Responders. That's the entire chapter. According to the law, a first responder peer is not a health care practitioner. To be a first responder peer for first responder peer support, you must have experience working as or with a first responder regarding any physical or emotional conditions or issues associated with the first responder's employment. And you also have to be designated by the first responder's employing agency to provide peer support as provided in the section and has received training for this purpose. It is written to our law in Florida to have the existence of first responder peer support. In that, it says that it must be kept confidential and a whole bunch of other things. It's, it's very well written. But I will tell you, it is one thing to have the law state that you have to have this system. It's another thing to use it properly. In a study called Critical Incident Stress Management for Law Enforcement by Lieutenant James Kenneth Hall, Hall conducted a survey of deputies working for the Polk County Sheriff's Office following a 2011 line-of-duty death of a Lakeland Police Department officer. Hall defined a critical incident as any event that produces sufficient emotional reactions in people and is considered generally outside the range of ordinary human experiences. Hall polled road and detention deputies. The questions and results are as followed. Without self-diagnosing, Answer along yourself. Have you been involved in a critical incident in your position? Of those asked, 72% of deputies stated that they have been involved in a critical incident compared to 28% of detention deputies. Those, surveys were, those surveyed were then asked, Do you think psychological debriefing should be mandatory after being involved in a critical incident? 25 of the 51 deputies surveyed answered yes, while 26 answered no. The response of deputy sheriffs was split nearly 50%. It was 49% one, 59, or 51% the other one. The response of surveyed detention deputies was much more diverse with 32% saying yes, uh, 7% saying no. I'm sorry, 32 of the people saying yes, 7%, not, per- not percentages, 7 people. The main focus of the survey was to determine if the members of the Polk County Sheriff's Office involved in a critical instance would rather be debriefed by a peer member who has received training in CISM, uh, Crisis Intervention Stress Management, a professional psychologist, or another source. The results show that 71% of deputy sheriffs surveyed indicated that they would want to be debriefed by a peer member trained in CISM. 16% would request that they be debriefed by a psychologist and 14% would want something else. The final survey question was, have you observed 
another deputy sheriff or detention deputy benefit from SISM? 29% of deputy sheriffs said yes to 71% who said no. Okay, there's a big, there's a lot to take apart from that. The final conclusion of the study was this. Every member of the agency should be trained in SISM. If the members of the agency are taught the benefits of stress debriefing, they are more likely to participate in a debriefing following an involvement in a critical incident. Supervisors and training officers should receive advanced training in SISM. The goal is to avoid what the United States military has experienced with supervisors telling young soldiers to be hard, you know, suck it up, kid, that kind of thing. Training officers usually set the example for young deputies or young officers. It is key that the training officers teach young officers the benefits of stress management. This is the biggest part of the takeaway. The agency's culture and attitude towards SISM must change in order for it to be successful. Once the supervisors and training officers have been introduced to the program, the new recruits will begin accepting stress management as a way of doing business, thus changing the culture of the agency. Now, in the, co- in the conversation that's about to play, you will hear Phil Klein and I talk about changing the entire culture of all first responders, from the academy to while you're working on the, in the trenches to retirement and beyond. Now, it's not to say there are people hard and fast not going to touch this, right? Um, and I talk about it in this conversation. Like, you get the older guys, they're just not going to be about it. Unfortunately, you know, those guys, you're not going to be able to change those mentality. It's, it's the way we've always done business. But if you start in the beginning and push forward to the new recruits, it'll slowly change your culture. Listen, to those of you in peer support or, you know, anything like that, it's one thing to say you support your people. It's another thing to actually do it. Okay, put your money literally and figuratively at times where your mouth is. So um, the biggest thing that I took away from it is that, hey, everyone wants to talk to their people, but they've yet to see it work. And that has to do with the culture change. That's what we need to get done. So let's go ahead and talk about my guests and then let's go ahead and bring them on because we're going to talk about all this at length. Phil Klein is the vice president of economic and workforce development at a college in West Virginia. He is charged with expanding the college's workforce development program. And he is overseeing current offerings and outreach through the community education offerings. He has previously served as the first dean of the School of Health and Public Safety at a school in North Carolina. And he spent the early part of his career in public service as a firefighter paramedic. He began his transition into higher education as an adjunct professor while still employed as a career firefighter. In 2012, he was tasked with creating a paramedic education program at a college. He has also worked as a dean and an associate vice president, but in his current role, he can directly make an impact on student success and thus changes to our profession. This conversation is nothing short of a treat. I know you're going to like it. I know you're going to get a lot from it. And really, I hope, as with most of my conversations, it's just another stone in this big pond of ours to create more ripples and hopefully we, we change the tide. So here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Here's my conversation for the sake of mental health with Phil Klein here on the 10-8 podcast.
are back, and I feel like every interview I start with, all right, we're back. I, I need a different uh, lead-in thing here. But um, today is a first for me. Uh, this is the first official episode where we've had someone from the fire service on, and uh, it's kind of exciting. I mean, I, I appreciate that you uh, got out of your recliner to come talk to me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I was going to say, it's about time someone comes on and classes the place up a little bit. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yep. 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 So these, you know, let me just kind of dig into these jokes a little bit to get them out of the way. But you know, these are uh, this gentleman here. He couldn't pass the police exam, so that's why he went to the fire service. But for everything he lacks as a as a for, as a law enforcement officer, he makes up for it in cooking ability. So we appreciate him for that. I fed many a cop. <laughs> oh yeah. You know I. So where I worked on the road, we didn't really have that kind of relationship with our fire department. Like it just didn't happen. But one time we had a call at the, at one of the firehouses and I don't know who he was. I I don't know if he had any kind of rank or anything, but he was helping me out with it. It was like a disturbance that rolled up to the fire department or whatever. And I kind of joked, but I was like, Hey, what's for dinner? And he goes, Oh, we got, we got chili going. I was like, really? He goes, yeah, stop by. I, and I was there, I don't know, probably three more years, never stopped by and actually had a plate, but they were very welcoming during the hurricane we had here a few months ago. We, so my new, new agency, um, is right across the street from the fire department. Again, one of the houses and they were the only ones that had power after the storm. So we went over and made coffee in their big uh, industrial coffee pot. So I mean, it was it was great. Like they were carrying on like nothing had happened. You know, they were they were fine. They had everything going on. Um, they did have the recliners in full swing. But um, you know, I I think that relationship is very important to have in this thing. And I feel like we get too tribal and we only stick with whatever our discipline is. And it needs to be so much more integrated than that. Yeah, you know, I agree. And and. Uh... You know, even though you you give me a hard time, I did spend the first 10 years of my career working for the police department. I was actually uh, I was a paramedic for the Nassau County Police Department, which is really an interesting model because, uh, you know, the Long Island is mostly volunteers. And they got to a point where they weren't sure if they could get ambulances out because they didn't have volunteers during the day. And the only paid entity was the police department. So the police department took over EMS in the 70s. And I was fortunate enough to be on that job for 10 years. Uh, really, really interesting model. It's a one-man ambulance. All the police officers are trained as EMT. So, you know, you get dispatched to a call and the cop would start, you know, they would they would start first aid before you got there. And then they would jump in and drive the ambulance to the hospital. And, and I will tell you this, you know, we joke around and I certainly have the utmost respect for law enforcement officers. Um, but I, I did get, you know, sort of paramedics revenge one day. I was I was driving back from the hospital. I had a police officer with me. I'm driving a big ambulance, and it says police on the side of it. And it's marked just like a police car, you know, that got really fat. And uh, so we're driving down the road in this car. So detective. <laughs> you, said it, you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. so this car cuts us off and, like, throws the finger at us or something. I'm working with this, with this officer. The guy had been on the job for, like, 400 years. I mean, he was there forever. And uh, a guy throws us the finger when he cuts us off, and uh, he looks at me. He goes, "He goes, pull that, pull that guy over." And I said, "This is going to be the greatest day of my life because I'm going to do a car stop and finally get." Because the guy thought he was just flipping off an ambulance, and sure enough, Willis got out and wrote the guy a ticket. I mean, it was beautiful. It was just a, a beautiful yeah, piece amazing. of my career right there. That's great. That's great. In in an ambulance. Like in that, an ambulance, the guy just had no idea what happened to him. Yeah. So. Uh, where I worked, the city just to the south of us, they were triple certified. So you were a cop, firefighter, and EMS mm-hmm. all in your same, um, 
you know, so, but they would, they would assign you whatever it was, you know, if you were working the, the truck or you were working a police car or whatever it might be. I always said cops need to be certified at the very least like an EMT. They don't have to be a full paramedic, but they should have that because a lot of times we do get there quicker because our cars are smaller and we get to scenes quicker and stuff like that. I remember asking fresh out of the gate, um, for, cause my CPR certification from the Academy had lapsed and I was like, Hey, can I, you know, I'm going to go to the firehouse. I don't need it. Well, first off, I said, do we do retraining here? She said, no, our training coordinator. And I said, okay, well, I, you know, fire department up by where I live is doing it. I'm just going to go there. Can I get reimbursed for training? And she said, no. And I was like, really? She goes, yeah, we don't do that. It's a liability thing. I shit you not. Six months later is when we get Narcan. And I'm like, but this is okay. I can give out medicine. <laughs> And obviously the running joke is cops giving Narcan for absolutely anything. Like, oh, is, are they breathing? I don't know. Narcan. And, Stub you know, their that's toe. Kind of give the a thing. little Narcan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's just – it's crazy. My dad was a 26-year police officer, but before that he worked at the EMS squad where he uh, – in the city he grew up in. So, you know, I joke. And I, I've also said even in the past, like, six months, I've even looked at what it would take to go through the fire service or even just EMT because – Honest to God, I hate fire. Like, the existence of fire just freaks me out. We had a small grease fire here a few weeks ago, and I, like, froze. I have no problem chasing after people with guns and drugs and all that stuff, but I saw a fire in my house. I'm like, what do I do? (laughs) And my girlfriend's like, yeah, blow it out. Like, she, you know, she had no problem. She's cool. So anyway, all that being said, we're kind of we're kind of deep in the woods here. So let's let's take a step out here. Let's go ahead and get you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you're from. All, all that baggage, and then we'll kind of continue where we where we were going. Yeah, you know, I was thinking that as we were talking. I so said, we, we're starting to get into this conversation. No one knows who you're talking to. So, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> and I, yeah. well, it's cool. Well, my name is Phil Klein, and uh, aside from other things that I do, I host the podcast Stories from the Road, First Responder Stories. Um, you were a guest on my podcast, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here repaying the favor, I guess. Uh, but I, I talk to I talk to all first responders. I don't discriminate. Um, I talk to dispatchers, fire police, uh, EMS folks. I even have uh, one guy that came on and told a military uh, veteran story, which included some goats, a fire, and some other strange things. And that's coming out later this season. But, <laughs> um, so, so that's what I do. But I spent a little over 25 years as a firefighter and a paramedic. And uh, somewhere along the line, I got roped into um, teaching. So um, the last 10 years or so, I've been, uh, I started my, my higher education career as an EMS instructor. I taught uh, EMT and paramedic classes and have somewhat uh, promoted into the role. I'm the vice president at a college now um, here in West Virginia. And I, I, th- I think it's funny because I left the fire service, I left being a paramedic, got into teaching, started a paramedic program. My first job as a dean, I had a paramedic program that was in trouble. My second job as a dean, I had a paramedic program that was on the verge of being shut down. Um, I become a vice president. I think I'm finally done with EMS. I can go on to bigger and better things. Mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. first thing I do is start an EMS program. So I just can't get away from <laughs> from EMS. And uh, it really was my first love. And I was an EMT and a firefighter at the age of 18 and thought I would be a paramedic for probably the rest of my career. Didn't work out. I was involved in some things in New York. And uh, we moved down to uh, to Georgia in 2002. So you can figure out what those things were. But, you know, it's been a good ride. And it's been it's been interesting doing doing some different things and seeing some different perspectives, um, especially on the education side. You know, first being someone who's actually teaching the classes and now being the person that is fortunate enough to knock barriers down and make sure that my program is, you know, unique and innovative. And my program director has all the tools that she needs 
uh, to run a top-notch program here in West Virginia, and we are, we're doing a fantastic job. I'm very proud of my team and the work that they're doing. Um, I have a, very little to do with that. I just, I just get stuff out of the way and get them some money when they need it, and that's pretty much what I do now. But uh, you know, the, the podcast is really what I'm passionate about, and the, and the topics that we talk about on the podcast I think are important. I think they're timely, and I think they're very relevant for first responders, especially in this day and age. Yeah, definitely. I've been on, obviously, like you said, your podcast, um, which to date is one of my favorite conversations I've had as a guest on a podcast. I think I've sent it to a lot of people. I'm like, because I... You know, when you're when you're the guest on a podcast, that's when the show is about you. When you're the host of a podcast, it's about your guests, more or less. And so I typically don't go into my story on this show all that much. I might, you know, allude to it one way or another. And I felt like you and I really talked about a lot of uh, prevailing issues throughout the first responder community. So, um, you know, to have you on here, I, I swear it was probably right after that, uh, that conversation. I put it in my notes, like, we got to get Phil on this show because I just really appreciated the the quality of the conversation that came out. And so that being said, I've been on other uh, firefighter-led podcasts, I think maybe one or two others, and it got me to thinking as I was setting up my setup today was that obviously I'm I'm focused on law enforcement, but I look at all first responders, especially nowadays working in dispatch and kind of, in, um, I don't even want to say integrated, but surrounded by it on, on social media is that Obviously, law enforcement, mental health is very important to me. I've, I've lost people who haven't, you know, taken care of that issue for themselves. But the fact that there are um, podcasts out there run by firefighters, and I know there's dispatcher ones, and obviously firefighter and EMT kind of go interchangeable a lot of times. It's a ongoing issue throughout all disciplines. A first responder is obviously our mental health and between things like the burnout and the organizational betrayal, like that is a universal issue that again, spans all different disciplines of law enforcement. And it's sad because here we are literally individuals giving up pieces of ourselves, literally and figuratively to serve the common good. And it really seems like the machine that, that runs our organizations can't be bothered to make sure that we have a safe work environment to continue to do our duty. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And again, coming at it from the education perspective, one of the things that, that I'm really lucky to be able to do is we teach mental health to our first responders from day one. So mm-hmm. uh, again, I have a, a fantastic program director. Her name is Linda Steele. And uh, she is she was uh, working on a master's degree in, in counseling, and she's very focused on mental health. And she teaches two programs. One is uh, the mental health first aid course for first responders, and that's a universal course. So we teach the first responder version, but you can teach that to to any to, you can teach to teachers and to nurses and and really any other occupation. And they have modules that are geared towards that. And the other thing that she does is the National Association of EMTs just came out with uh, it's the mental health resiliency officer. And now we're going out to agencies and we're starting to teach that course. So I, I agree with you. You know, you're, you're putting yourself in harm's way every day. And, you know, again, all joking aside, whether you're you know, running into a burning building or you're chasing, you know, a, a, a suspect down the street, you're, you're in a, an incredibly dangerous situation. Anything can go wrong at any moment. Um, and that takes its toll on us as first responders and across, you know, across the occupation we don't do enough to take care of each other and take care of ourselves. So I think these classes that we're doing are very important. 
I love that we're doing it on the front end so that a kid that comes in that's 18 years old that wants to be an EMT, almost from day one, he's getting trained in mental health and things to look for. So maybe we're making a difference that way. Yeah, that's definitely an important aspect. I know, you know, and I've talked to different guests on here that their academy experience may have mentioned mental health and, you know, hey, make sure you have a hobby, but it kind of stopped there. They didn't, they don't really delve far into it. And it's not right. You know, we, we definitely need to highlight it. There's many different resources out there. The bookshelf behind me is littered with different first responder based mental health books. And you can hand it to a a would be cop, firefighter, EMT, whatever, and tell them to read it. But they may probably won't. Like I know when I was in college, I'm in college now, I don't read all the books I'm supposed to. So when you have something that's engaging, because I may not read a book, but if I'm in, in the class, especially if I'm paying my way, I'm going to be engaged in what's going on in the class. So to you know, have me sit down, not make it an option, not make it an elective and be like, hey, this is what we're talking about and kind of instill in their mind that this is the culture of, of our profession. I think that's important. And, and as we were talking about on, on your show, it's starting to be this whole gradient shift of that because almost out of necessity, we need to make it that way. Yeah. I think you said something very important that you said the culture of the occupation, I believe, and you talked about culture and, mm-hmm. you know, I know, I think I'm a little bit older than you are, but when I got on the culture was, you know, suck it up kid. And I talked to a number of folks on the mm-hmm. podcast who had the same experience, you know, Hey, you know, that, that guy just overdosed and your brother overdosed. That's too bad. You got to move on to the next call. Um, or the, the other side of things, which is almost infuriating at this point where you ask for help and the first thing they do is drug test you and take you off the street or take away your gun or, mm-hmm. or, you know, go send you, you know, on administrative leave. Uh, we, we've got to, not we, but the, a collective, we have got to change the culture right. for first responders, right? We've got to make, make sure that it's understood that when there's something going on with you, even when there's not, even when those, those symptoms don't manifest yet, but when, you know, when you have that horrific call or something just seems off, that it's okay to ask for help and that there are people in place that are going to recognize that and get you the help that you need without taking you off the street or having you lose your job or, you know, fear of, of you know, all these things that can happen to you simply because you ask for help. You know, if you have the flu and you go home sick, then you go home sick for a couple of days, you take a few days off and you come back when you're fit for duty. Mm-hmm. And if you have, you know, a horrific call, you know, they, we dust you off and we say, we'll go on to the next one. I think one of the one of the ones that really stood out to me, going back to the job that I was on in New York, I, I had a an old friend on that job and he he ran a call, he ran it with the police officers, they had three dead children in the house. The mother had killed all three of her children, babies, you know, young kids. And the police officers, because of the strength of the union, it was, you know, we were civil service, they were PBA, uh, because of the strength of the union and because of the strength of the supervisors, they took these guys off the street, got them counseling, got them everything they needed. And the paramedic who had to go in there and make the pronouncement and really deal with the situation was told, well, you can go sit in medical command for, you know, the rest of the shift if you don't want to, if you don't want to ride the ambulance for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. Like that was it. Mm -hmm. And not, not really faulting those guys. I mean, that's, that's the way the job is, but that's got to change. You can't look at three dead kids and, well, we'll go sit you in a room in a radio, in a dark room with a radio for the next eight hours and everything's going to be okay. That's probably going to make it worse. And I think that's why he stayed on the street. <laughs> right, right. And you start ruminating on things yeah. and everything like that. That whole mindset has got to change. We've got to jump into action yeah. and say, you know what? You know, I, I had a, another guy on the podcast, Drew, um, Drew Breezy. I, I, know, I know you know him. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But he told the story about, you know, they were 
I forget what the order was, but one night they're they're putting out a car fire with a guy trapped in a car. They're yelling for fire extinguishers, fire extinguishers, and then a couple of nights later, the same crew has somebody shot, and it might have been vice versa. I don't remember, but and they're calling for bandages, right? And it's the same guys that are either calling for fire extinguishers, and the next night they're calling for bandages, and he recognized that and said, you know, this is a traumatic event. These two guys had these similar calls to a certain extent where they're looking for equipment or supplies, and he held them out. And wouldn't let them go mm-hmm. back on onto the you know onto their uh, shift and continue their tour, uh, because you recognize that. And when he did that, I mean, it was probably 10, 15 years ago that he did that. And he caught a lot of flack for it, but it was the right thing to do for those guys because they needed a break at that point. And and when when those law enforcement type things happen, right? And I, I know it's the exact same for the fire. Um, you know, it, it is continuous and it just keeps on going. I remember when you're saying that one of uh, one of the final nights. When I was on the road, uh, it would ultimately be, we had just had an officer shooting and there was a rumor, it was uh, 4th of July weekend, there was a rumor that a bunch of um, black nationalists were in town gearing up to shoot at cops. And the, the call came in that there's guys in a box truck and motorcycles with guns and they're going to pop out and, and shoot cops. So, of course, cops have to address that. <coughs> address that. That's a call for service. So I remember us going a few blocks down and we had the whole the whole city basically there like 20 cops and our lieutenant who was a SWAT commander was like all right we're going to go out there guns out and we're going to handle business we're going to leave it all in the field a few weeks removed from our buddy getting shot right mm-hmm. that is not first of all that's not what I signed up for like that's insane that's an insane idea that we're going to drive into this p- potential shootout right like I'm thinking, okay, corral, you know, like this is going to be insane. It ended up being a spoof or whatever. Probably, I mean, you look at it now, were they gauging a response, whatever? But you know, I I just always remember like him saying like, hey, we're going to leave it all on the field, blah blah blah. And I'm like, where am I right now? This is insane, you know. And then it was like, all right, let's go handle this uh, this uh, this barking dog complaint. Let's go handle this shoplift, you know. And it's like. Wait, we have no like debrief on that. No check, like, hey, everyone's okay. You you might have just been driving into your death. Everyone okay? No, okay, okay. Yeah, you're, like, you're still at a thousand, and now you're gonna go take care of a barking dog. Right, right, exactly. And it's just like, and that that's an extreme, but it happens all the time, and it it happens in dispatch also, where it's like, all right, I just handled this, you know, active violent family disturbance. Now let me get a loud music complaint or something, and it's like. Hold on a second. Can we just like press reset for just one second? But the the culture and the you know the staffing of the culture doesn't allow it either because we're so short staffed. Things just keep rolling, and it's 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 tough. You need that relief, but it's not always available. I think a lot of times too to go back to what you were saying a minute ago. I think the anticipation of what could happen is often worse than what actually does happen. At least oh, at least from sure, a mental yeah. perspective, right? Because you you ramp up for these things, you prepare for it. You know, for you going into this situation, you prepare to go into battle, you know something bad is potentially going to happen. Uh, you know, I think about it as a firefighter, right? So I'm standing outside a front door and there's flames blowing through the roof and we're going to go in there and look for, you know, we know someone's trapped in that building. We've got to go find them. You know, something could go horribly wrong and there's that all that pressure on you. I think when I felt it the most uh, was actually 9-11. So I was never near the towers when when everything went bad, but I was in New York and um, I was sent out to the field and I was, you know, probably 40 miles away from the city when everything happened. We had no idea what was going to go on. But that still affects me even to today um, because you didn't know what was going to happen next and you were so close right, to it. Right. 
So yeah, that that anticipation is probably worse than anything else. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, just talking from a mental health standpoint, like that's just me. Like I'm always going to take like mentally, I always take things as you know worst case scenario. So you throw it in a life or death first responder situation. I'm already there, you know, and I'm I'm freaking out, and it kind of brings up that hypervigilance and you know everything that goes wrong with that. Um, I'm gonna take a step back to what you were talking about about you know taking um, guys out of that rotation or you know what what we do to kind of help the situation when we're in trauma or things like that. Like EAP, in my mind, is not a terrible system. I know it's get, it gets a lot of flack these days for one reason or another. Um, I've had bad experiences, but I've also had good experiences with things like EAP where I called EAP and I just couldn't find someone in network. Everyone was busy, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, they really need to update this list to the point where like, you know, I wasn't in crisis, but I was definitely in the need of talking to someone and I couldn't find someone and I got frustrated and I just stopped the quest. But there's a lot of folks out there that call that won't even call EAP because they think like, oh, it's paid for by my employer. Uh, they're going to find out. They're going to find me unfit for duty. It's going to be, you know, something bad for me. And I've never had that concern. Maybe I'm naive. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm too trusting. But I've never had that issue. But the fact that it is an issue for so many people, then they just hold it in. And you're right. It's so quick for someone to say. Like when I when I stepped aside, stepped aside from law enforcement, I told my training cadre, I said, "Hey, this is what's going on with me. I'm not feeling good. You know, I I need. I actually just asked for a day off, and they were like immediately, "What do you want to kill yourself? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. We we don't have to jump to that conclusion, you know. And again, going back to what I just said, like we always jump to the worst possible scenario, but it doesn't always have to be that direct, right? You can have a bad day." And not want to kill yourself. That's pretty That's pretty common, actually. People get into, you know, just funky seasons. Or just funky days. And it doesn't have to jump that far. And you're right. If you, if you stub your toe, you know, you hurt your toe and you go home hurt on that, that's it. You know, they just make sure that you're good enough to continue when you come back. And that's it. We don't need to have, you know, fitness for duty exams. We don't need to take guns or, you know... I, I even know one person that like got their ID swapped, so it said like police unarmed on it, and I'm like, what a slap in the face! Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it, and those things make you not want to come forward and say, hey, you know, I, I'm not doing too great, and that's why we bottle it up, and that's where things go terribly, terribly wrong. You know, and that's really important too because I, I don't, th- and, and I'm not, I'm not an expert, but. I don't think it's the single incident that that causes no. officers mm-hmm. to you know to take their lives or to really break down. It's the cumulative effect. You know, there, there certainly can be one incident that puts them over the top, but it's that cumulative effect. And what you just said makes a lot of sense. So if you're not talking about it and not seeking help when it's when it's a small problem, you know, when it becomes a big problem, it's almost too late at that point. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you get an infection mm-hmm. in your toe, right? Since we're talking about toes, and and you leave it alone, leave it alone until your whole toe is black. And then all of a sudden you decide to go to the doctor. Well, we got to take the toe off at that point, right? When right. you could have fixed that little infection, you know, with some, some antibiotic or something two months ago and everything would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. But we, we don't get to that point. We don't want to go to the doctor. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to treat the small problem because, ah, it's just a little, just a little something here and it's a little something there. But it's the cumulative effect of the stress that we feel when we're out on the streets that piles up and piles up. And, and I, I honestly think the fire department is – maybe things have evened out now, but I think the, the fire department was actually better 
at recognizing when their firefighters were going through bad calls. So, you know, if we had some, I remember having a, a call where we had a double, it was a double shooting and they, then they lit the house on fire, probably not in that order, but, you know, we went in, we pulled the woman out, the other crew went and grabbed the, uh, the guy that was in the back of the house. And, you know, all of a sudden the critical incident stress team is coming down and, you know, they're going to talk to us and make sure we're okay. And that's great. We had a big incident, you know, but what about the 50 or 60 calls we ran before that one mm-hmm. that nobody really cared about? And that, you know, so I'm glad you brought that up. So I'm on my, my department's critical incident team and I've been big into peer support, obviously from everything that I've done and experienced. And so that's why it was important for me to get on the team. But exactly, it's it's reactive. And I feel like mental health has to be proactive. And, you know, you can tell people, like I do on here, like, hey, you know, there's services, there's different organizations, blah, 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 blah. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be there. And especially if, you know, you're in West Virginia, I'm in Florida, someone's listening from California, it may not be local to them. I, I, whenever I give it out, I try to make sure it's something that's nationwide at the very minimum. But that being said, wouldn't it be more effective to have someone in your house, in your department, who is always available, pushing out maybe email blasts saying like, hey, here's a seminar, here's a, here's a retreat, here's this. Then at that point, you know, you're a lighthouse, not a tugboat. I'm going to show you where it is. I can't make you go there. But... Let me let me do that. So that way, and I, I've said this before, and I said this at work. I was like, why would anyone come talk to me? What kind of credibility have I built up to this point? None. People don't even know me from Adam. We need to be proactive about this. When we have peer support teams or we have critical incident teams, we need to obviously be there when the critical incident happens, but build that foundation. And I've had a guy on a show uh, last year where his entire role at his police department was officer wellness. He would his daily duty is coming in, reviewing the past calls for service. Like, all right, who should I check on? Who was on these calls? Like, things minor, just like a quick check in. Like, hey, you good? You know, and then that's it. We don't we don't dwell on it. We don't like keep following up um, unless it's necessary. And I'm like, why? That should be the industry standard. Obviously, staffing and funding just doesn't allow for that. But that's what we should work for if we're so in florida it's written in our legislature that you will have a uh, critical incident team or at the very minimum a regional team okay great you have that let's work on how we make it work better for our people and you know we have like um we have classes for cops being proactive all the time right they're going to go out there and stop a drug dealer or strap you know whatever it might be ahead of time well we need to be proactive with our mental side too because when you have a critical incident, you don't want that to be like, all right, now it's time to call a therapist or now it's time to seek counseling. No, we should have already started building that foundation. So that way, and I say it all the time, that's what resiliency is, is when shit hits the fan, you've already got something there to kind of help you weather that storm. That's, I mean, that's, that's my take on it at the very minimum. Yeah. And that's kind of the core of that mental health resiliency program that we're starting to teach now. It's, it's teaching, um, first responder agencies, how to have that mental health officer in place, that one person that does exactly what you just talked about. Um, and I'll be honest with you, if there's anybody that wants to take that class, have them get in touch with me. We can do that remote. Um, we will make it extremely cost effective, if nothing, um, because it's such an important class. And uh, I know my program director will, will absolutely uh, you know, jump in and teach that class to anybody that needs it. It's, a, it's important. And, you know, 
to say it's important is almost understating it by how important mm-hmm. it truly is. And, you know, I've looked at, like I said, I've taken peer support trainings, I've taken different things, and I'm just always trying to be a better resource. And I took a peer support training, I don't know, maybe a month ago now at this point, and it was so eye-opening, but it, it I literally learned so much about how to be a better person to peer support, right? Because I'm not a counselor, you know, I'm going to school for it and everything, but I'm not. So I can't really tell you how to remedy your situation, but to, to support your fellow officer, firefighter, whatever, is an important position to be in. And we need people to be properly trained for it because otherwise someone hits you with something dramatic or traumatic, I should say, and they go, hey, you know what, let's just go to the bar. We'll, we'll knock back a few and we'll feel better. Like, no, no, that's not that's not what we're talking about. It needs to be a, a little a little more substantive than that. You know, but that's a good point, too, because what do we do, right? We... I think there's a double standard, right? So when, when somebody takes their life, first respond, I don't care if it's fire, police, EMS, dispatch, whatever, they take their own life. And we look at the, we look at the organization and we say, where did we fail, right? Because we mm-hmm. lost somebody. But when that same person, if they don't take their own life and they go out to the bar and they have a few drinks and they get a DUI, well, now we, we, we villainize them, right? If, they, if, right, if the guy right, that's never yeah. been violent in his, wife, in his life ends up you know, going home and, and getting into a fight with his wife and maybe pushing her, we villainize that. He's, he's, it's domestic mm-hmm. violence now at this point. Or you know, somebody turns to drugs and we villainize that. Right? We, we, don't, we don't have the same approach to somebody who has probably the same exact symptoms, the same traumas, the same triggers as somebody who took their life. And because they didn't rise to that level, then the system didn't fail, the person failed. And I think that's a terrible double yes. standard, and we have to start looking at that as well. I, I agree completely. And... You know, I actually, I wrote in my notepad today, you know, we have people out here championing, air quotes, mental health for law enforcement and first responders. And then they go around and they vilify whatever, when someone doesn't exhibit mental health problems, when they do in an untraditional way, right? So to have a mental health problem or to have a trauma response does not necessarily mean sitting in the dark sad right it could be exactly like you're saying increased risk taking increased um you know absurd behavior for that person whether it be drinking drugs getting more violent things like that and sexual promiscuity right and it's so easy to just say that person's a bad person and I was like, hold on a second. Why don't we take a step back and look at the bigger picture here? Because it's so easy to point fingers. I've <laughs> It's weird because I've seen people get caught up in bad situations. They got vilified. And then when someone else had the same issue happen, they start vilifying them. And it's like the circle of pain just keeps continuing. It's like, hold on. We need to break this cycle. We need to, we need to realize that. It's a trauma response, nine times out of ten, is an issue with whatever you're going on, it, whether it be you know post-traumatic stress or cumulative stress. And we just need to like look at it. And you're right. We need to stop just going like, oh, this guy's a drunk. This guy's a druggie. He's a woman beater. He's a whatever. And I use the male pronouns, but it's, it's obviously men or women. It's, you know, it, it's, it's where the organization, it's where the culture needs to start looking at it. And... It's kind of got me thinking that, you know, substance abuse, financial issues, that's a big one. Those are almost more stigmatized than just mental health. Because if if someone 
someone listening right now has a drinking problem, and they know they have the drinking problem, they're never going to come out and say, hey, I need to go to detox or something because you want to talk about getting blacklisted. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's where my mind would go if I was thinking, oh, I need to, I need to sober up for 30 days. Imagine the locker room talk that's going to come from something like that. I mean, and that's unfortunate because it's just a symptom of a bigger issue. Right, and it doesn't rise rise to the same level as somebody that hurts himself. So you mentioned the law in Florida. That law in Florida was put in place, if memory serves, because of a deputy that took out his family and then took himself out. Had he not mm-hmm. taken himself out, that law is probably not there. Right. He's a villain at that point, right? He's just somebody that, you know, he's a bad person. Even though his entire career, it was, and again, I, I'm working off a of memory here, but his entire career, he was an exemplary officer. Um, mm-hmm. And he came back and, and was working, I believe, as a resource officer. And uh, after retirement, just to help out and -hmm. something happened to him, something, you know, he snapped somewhere along the line. But that's a great example. Had he not taken his own life, I don't think that law is in place, at least not at the time that that it's in place now, but maybe somewhere down the road. Right, right. And not for that necessarily. Well, obviously not for that incident. Mm -hmm. They're not going to look at and go, oh, well, this guy just took out his whole family. He's obviously just a bad person. And we have to look at and go, okay, but where was that disconnect? Where was that? Where was that snapping point? And I'm not making excuses for people that make bad decisions, but you need to look at the full thing. Like if if someone comes out here, he cheats on his wife. Yes, that's a bad decision. Absolutely. I'm not here to say like, oh, the poor guy, he's got issues. But does he? Right. Did something what else led up to that point? Or or is he a bad person? You know, and I think that's really where as first responders, we look for causation of problems, right? Um, when you're a firefighter, you're looking for what started the fire. How do we put it out? When you're a cop, you're trying to get all the evidence possible to solve the crime, to make sure the proper person's charged. Same thing goes with a mental health issue. You know, you could put someone in rehab, right? But if the, if that's only like the tip of the iceberg for that person, then when they come out, they're just going to go dive right back into it. At least that's my, from what I've learned from talking to different people and gaining different perspectives. And if we're really trying to solve problems, we need to look at the root cause of them. We can't just look at the symptoms and be like, okay, well, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do, no, like, let's, let's go back. And while I don't think that entire responsibility falls on the agency, I think it does fall on the agency to start that process, figure out where it begins and then kind of go from there. Yeah, and I think, it, I think it falls on the agency early on too, right? So we're not just yes. dealing with problems as they arise. We're dealing with problems long before we ever get there and putting those tools in place to, so that we don't get to that point. Um, and, and, you know, we said this earlier in the podcast, right? There, This is a difficult job and you're asked to give a tremendous amount of yourself and you lose pieces of yourself. You shouldn't lose Always. your mental health because of the career that you chose. Exactly, especially when you went into it, you were so you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, eager to help, mm-hmm. you know, even just that the burnout, right. We're, we're kind of taking things to an extreme level, but, but even burnout to the point where like people don't care, you know, they show up to work and they're like, eh, whatever happens, happens. Like I, I could care less. I could, or you get job performance to the point of like zero effort, which is not good for a myriad of other issues. And it absolutely starts from, day one. And that's why you saying that you do something like that from a educational level for the, for the brand new guys is amazing. I think we obviously need that. And then from there, it needs to be a constant checking, constantly going back to the drawing board. What's going on? Where are we? And, you know, unfortunately we can't manifest people. We can't 
you know, fix staffing numbers. But what we can do is take the problems that are in front of us and figure out how do we mitigate this into a healthy way. Do we, you know, change our traditional shift structures or things like that so that way more people get more time off? I don't I don't know. I'm not I'm not there, you know, in a in a career path to see what's possible. But it's something that if I was an administrator, I would go, okay, how can we do that so that way, you know, by someone having a day off, a mental health day, it doesn't burden more people on the road. You know, so I think it's just from an organizational standpoint, it's something that we need to look at also to kind of mitigate all these factors that are kind of building up because the burnout is at times worse than or not. It's like a giant cause of all the mental health issues. Yeah, and I think we do have to take a, a really good look at the type of work that we're doing, how we're doing it. I think shifts are a big deal. When, when I worked for the police department, we used to work rotating eights. So you work a week of seven to three, a week of three to 11, and a week of, of midnights. And what they found out was that guys were retiring, and two or three years later, they were dropping dead because um, their bodies were just right. a, a mess for you know 20 years. And then all of a sudden, they retire, and they just can't handle it. Um, so they went to 12-hour shifts, and it was it was it was great because you work three days on, four days off with a three-three somewhere, and they had to get your rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a big, I mean, that was a big deal, right? There were there were people that did absolutely did not want to do that. Uh, and, and as a culture, I think we have to be open to some of these changes. You know, fire departments have Kelly days, right? You get an extra day off here and there. Maybe the police department needs an extra day off. Uh, maybe you get personal days or vacation days, uh, sick days, and mental health days, or a per- or more personal days that you can use or mandatory use of them when you know you had something bad go on, then, you know, you get those days. Um, but yeah, we do have to, as, as a group, take a look at the work that we do, how we do it, um, even procedurally and see what we can do to make this a more inviting career and a more survivable career. Because I, I think the, the average burnout for a paramedic is like five years. I'm not sure what it is for, for the police and fire. Fire is probably a little bit longer because it's a much better job, but, um, See what I did there? And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but you still, you have to look at these guys that are doing these jobs and ladies as well. I say guys collectively, um, that are doing these jobs and we have to figure out how we can support them, how administration can support them. And maybe some big changes have to, have to take place. You know, I think the fact that you have that, that mental health officer in place, um, departments have that. I think that's huge. That's the person that's going out and mm-hmm. checking on them. And it couldn't, it doesn't have to be somebody that's formally trained. It could be somebody that that's their role and, you know, they take it on almost like a sergeant's job. As they take it on as part of their responsibilities of the day is to is to check on folks, and then it becomes normal, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you uh, when you went from uh, from a revolver to a nine millimeter, right, or or to you know whatever you're shooting, but the gun change yeah. became normal after time, right? When we went from boots to bunker gear, it became normal. If guys fought it, they didn't want the they didn't want the bunker gear, they didn't want the hoods, right. but it becomes right. normal after after a little bit of time. So while it's difficult to digest change right away, eventually it gets digested and it just becomes normal. Right. And, you know, we had uh, – I laugh. In in the dispatch center, we went to a whole new different phone system and everything since I've been there. It's only been a year and a half now. And you're always going to have the old – you know, the old salt that resists all change whatsoever. You're going to have the – the proactive people being like, hey, bring whatever on, you know, I'm all about trying something out, you know, and you have everything in between that. But I think there's a point where, like, some to some degree, things can't be optional. Like, hey, this, you know, this mental health guy is going to show up. He's going to, you know, you're in a kind of shitty call, expect his phone call, expect him to check on you. But don't make it 
don't make it weird. You know, like it, I, re- you know, I remember coming home or coming back to work after a hairy call, getting a call from my supervisor at the point going, Hey, um, we're going to have a mandatory briefing at six. And then obviously, you know, that, Oh, we're going to get critically, uh, debriefed by a, by a head shrinker or something. And those were just a waste of time because you bring in someone who has no idea what they're talking about as far as law enforcement culture mm-hmm. and expect everybody just to, you know, open up and be like, Oh, this is how I felt. Those don't work. I mean, I think that you need to have someone clinically there, but you need to rework it, right? So don't make it weird. Like, literally have it be your mental health officer or, you know, whoever it is at the fire department call up and be like, hey, I saw that you were in this. Like, everything good? You need anything? Okay, well, here's my number if you need it. Done. Like, you're opening that dialogue or even make it, like, someone's office, you know, and be like, hey, you know, Phil, can you come in and talk to me real quick? You know, just make it normal procedure at that point. So that way it's not... It's not weird. It's not awkward. And it just feels normal. I think by starting something like that or starting the mentality of that in the academies or or in the college setting, I think is a great idea because you get these new guys who really are just like, they're, they're these fresh slates and they're taking everything in and, you know, you're going to teach them how to conduct a car stop or whatever, you know, how to, how to make a good bowl of chili if they're in the fire academy (laughs) and see what I did there. (laughs) But they're fresh slates, and they're going to take everything to uh, to the letter. So if you start saying like, "Hey, you know, th- this culture is very, you know, it's not what your uh, your dad or your grandfather told you it was," you know, this is don't make it as the touchy feely situation. But at the same time, that's it. Up here on the on the bookshelf, I have a book called The Choir Boys. It talks about the '70s LAPD, where you know guys would get off work they'd go drinking they go partying because that was their way of like de-stressing and they would get in so much trouble they would you know get arrested get in shootings get in fights that was the norm then so we're obviously making gigantic strides but those things still happen today mm-hmm. those things still happen where guys you know and, and squads go out and they get in a lot of trouble looking at laverne tennessee right i i bring that up because yeah. that is that was such a major issue and everybody made jokes and everyone thought it was a great idea. You know, let's, let's pile on this. And I'm like, the whole time I'm like, there's something more here. There's a mental health issue here. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily buy the new news story where she's saying she was being groomed and it was against her will. Right, right. I don't buy that. I think that's, that's, that's cleaning up a mess. I think there was definitely more to it there. Like what, you know, what were those officers dealing with that made this a thing? Or, you know, again, going back to some people make bad decisions or were they just making bad decisions? I don't know, but I, the, Sism guy, the mental health guy goes, let's investigate this just a little bit more because it doesn't make sense. Why would they risk a career for a little bit of party? It sounded exactly like the choir boys and choir practice, you know? So I'm like, when I hear these things, it all just kind of tells me that (laughs) this mental health stuff needs to be pushed more. And, you know, I know people don't always want to hear or talk about the mental health stuff, but if you approach it in a digestible way, like I feel like this conversation is a very, very calm. It's not, we're not preaching. We're just trying to figure out how do we help our professions? You know, and I think it's just so important that we look at all these situations going on and then kind of push from there. Yeah. You know, I read, I read most of the investigation and, and it's a good point that you bring up because mental health never, never entered that conversation at all. And and I would venture a guess that it was never even looked at. It never came into play. It was simply the acts and everything that took place. 
but never the why. You know, why was this going on? Mm-hmm. How did this happen? What led to this? And I, and I think you see that across the board. You know, I said earlier, you get the guy that goes out and, you know, is involved in a domestic violence incident for the first time in his mm-hmm. life at, you know, 40-something years old. And nobody really, you know, they look at, you know, what sparked that particular incident, not everything that led up to this. I had the opportunity to talk to a fire lieutenant um, who was arrested, and he was arrested for domestic violence. Um, and he, you know, equated it all to his mental health. Um, he had PTSD that was undiagnosed and God bless his fire department because they didn't fire him. Um, you know, he, he had to go through the process. He was on administrative leave. He had to go through the court system. Um, and they, they demoted him, but they kept him on the job and, um, really worked with him. And it says a lot about that department that they recognized that there was more going on than just the headline Mm -hmm. of, you know, firefighter arrested for domestic violence. And, and we need more of that. You know, the other thing too, you were talking about the critical incident stress debriefings and, and you're right, they don't work. Uh, but I think they can, and I think they, they are probably starting to work a little bit more now. I think this younger generation is probably a little bit more open to talking about their feelings. Um, we could say whatever we want about the kids that are coming up now, but I think it's a good thing that they're at least open. You know, I remember my mm-hmm. son going back, I don't know, let's see, five, four, maybe five or six years ago. You know, had a really, well, I guess he's a little bit older, three or four years ago. He had a bad breakup with a girl, and uh, you know, he calls me up, and he's like, Dad, I just I don't want to live anymore. Like I would like if I called my dad at work and said, "Hey, I, I broke up with this girl. And I'm really feeling bad about it." Like my dad would hang up on me, be like, "Ah, suck it up, mm-hmm. kid." You know. But the mentality right. is changing, and he's willing to share his feelings. And maybe that's that's the kind of relationship that we have that he knows he can talk to me. But I, I think it's I think it's more generational. I think the kids today that are going to be the next generation of firefighters and police officers are more open to talking about things than than we ever were. Uh, you know, I talked mm-hmm. to a guy in the podcast who was about my age, and he talked about a call that he ran. Some kid got killed, and he went to talk to the older guys at the firehouse. And, and yeah, they called him every name in the book and, you know, suck it up, get out of here. If you can't handle this, you don't belong here. It was the same thing when I, when I ran through calls, you know, early on in my career, you know, 30 years ago. So yeah, the, the generations are changing, and it becomes important. And when you get to those critical incident stress debriefings, if there's people that are there that are willing to lead that conversation – from the folks that are being debriefed, then I think they can work. And you're right, it's gotta be it's gotta be a little better than just somebody completely from the outside who has no relation to the organization. Uh, but if it truly is a peer debriefing, I think it can work and it can work well as long as the the guys that have you know have 30 years on the job get involved and lead the way and recognize that you know this is something that's necessary. Uh, I don't think you're going to see it work any other way because when the when the 30 year guy is sitting in the back going ah this is a bunch of crap we don't need this, the 20 year old kid is going to follow him and it's going to just perpetuate. Or even if the 20 year old kid would have been open to Mm -hmm. talking about it, he's now going to clam up because he doesn't want to be stigmatized by the by the old salt in the back. Yeah, yeah, he does. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to get made fun of it at the the dinner table later on, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, so it's got to be a complete culture change. And I, and I think that change is coming. And I think, I don't know, 20 years from now, this is probably an entirely different conversation. Right. And, and I definitely hope so for, for a myriad of reasons. Obviously, our, um, our society needs our first responders to be healthy and well. So hopefully as this um, becomes a more talked about issue and topic, um, it continues to lead that progressive change that, that we need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, time heals all wounds. And I think part of that is those old dinosaurs retiring, you know, obviously we wish them well, because 
you know, the retire the post retirement life expectancy for law enforcement. I don't know what it is for fire, but it's not very good. I think it's five years. And then there's, you know, for one reason or another, guys are dropping dead or, or taking their own lives. And that's, that's another big issue too, because they took all that time of building up that salty crust. And then when you take away all the, everything that goes along with it, all those defense mechanisms. Yeah. Then suddenly they're left with their thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. and, you know, bad things happen. So hopefully we can get to them before that happens, before they retire. But it is it is a uh, very slow progression, but I do see the progression happening. It's just things need to be tweaked as it's going on uh, to be the most effective. You know, and that's an interesting point, too. Uh, one of the first episodes I did on the podcast was an episode called Ghosts, and I talked to a, a lieutenant friend of mine who, who's been retired, and uh, he talks about how he drove past this street, and there was a car accident there 20 years ago, and a couple of people died, and as he drove by, he saw their ghost for the first time. And, and like that had never happened to him before in his career. And he recognized that he retired. And all of a sudden, he started to relax. And that hypervigilance was gone. And those defense mechanisms were breaking down. And what he brought up was an interesting point. We teach people. We're getting better at teaching people how to deal with stress while they're on the job. We're getting people. We're getting good at, at, at teaching how to deal with your mental health as you're getting into this career. We do absolutely nothing for people when they're leaving this career. And as their bodies start to relax and all these things start to creep in that they pushed out for so long, we don't do anything to help these folks. So maybe that's another area of mental health that needs to be addressed. And you know, maybe that's why the life expectancy is so short and we're seeing so many suicides of guys that are off the job now. And these are probably suicides that we're not hearing much about because they've retired. And you're right. And then obviously suicide statistics especially in the first responder world are so underreported because of the stigma so you get them you know they were accidental they were you know whatever and so whenever i see the numbers i think about it and i'm like we need to tack more numbers on here because i know there's plenty that are going unreported or misreported and um you're right and the other aspect obviously and this is a conversation for a different time is physical wellness you know when you retire all the stress that your body has been put through biologically that comes and eats up on you. I mean, how many, uh, police fire EMT have heart problems and they really manifest post retirement. And it's because all that, you know, all that, uh, adrenaline fatigue finally comes to rue. And, um, you know, it's all things that we need to consider. And I feel like I, so the peer support training I was talking about earlier was led by a retired chief, from uh, an agency down here. And he was saying that he retired his last day. They swapped him his ID for, you know, this active law enforcement for, uh, uh, actually, I'm sorry. He wasn't a chief. He was a retired um, lieutenant or whatever. And so they swapped, swapped out his thing. They walk him out. He comes back maybe three months later for something else. He got a new job and he comes in and they didn't even recognize him, you know, and they kind of treated him like, sir, do you know your way around the building? You know, and he, gave 30 years of his life to this building Mm -hmm. and I get it right. This is not pro sports. When you retire, they're not going to put your name up in the rafter somewhere. It's not going to be that significant, but there needs to be something for the retirees because they lose that sense of identity. And then that kind of, um, that creeps up on you too. Like, Oh, who was I this whole time? Like, what, what do I have to show for us? A bad backs and bad knees and, you know, all this crap and high blood pressure. You know, obviously we, we don't, we need to work on that also. 
Yeah, there was uh, the last fire department I worked for. They actually did a pretty good job, and they would do a retiree luncheon, I think quarterly. Um, and it was all these retirees would get together, and they'd host a lunch at one of the firehouses, take the, uh, you know, the uh, rigs out of the bay, and, you know, give them a, you know, they, the department paid for it, give them a nice lunch. And all these old retired guys can get together and swap stories and even talk to the guys in the station. And I always thought that was just something really nice to do for these, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you think about it, you spend so much of your time with the guys that you work with, um, especially at the firehouse. You know, the guys at your station, you're spending every third day or if you're on a California schedule, it's a little, little different. But you're spending all this time with these guys and then you retire and you never see them again. And that's a big part mm-hmm. of your life. So at least if you can get together with the retirees other folks that maybe you went through the academy with or worked with over the years, at least you, you retain that connection. And I think that's really important for the, for the guys that leave the job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, you give so much to your li- of your life to this uh, profession or this department or whatever. It's only right that, you know, they kind of continue to give it. Uh, your retirement paycheck's one thing, but there needs to be more because money definitely, as we both know, is not the root of happiness. So yeah. And this isn't like working at IBM either. You know, this is an entirely different type of job. You get very connected to it. You're never off duty. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so it, it really is very different. And, and, and you should get a little something out of it when you retire beyond your gold watch and your, and your paycheck. Your retirement right. Check. I think, yeah. There, you know, and I, I've thought about it a lot in like, you know, you get your VFWs, you get your American Legions, you get, you know, those kind of organizations. And I don't, I don't know. It's not down here. And if there is, I haven't seen it, but there's no like FOP or PBA lodge where, you know, mm. cops or former cops can go. All you have to do is show your former membership. And maybe there needs to be, maybe these unions. Um, and, and I know like up in New York and New Jersey, the unions are a lot stronger and they're more active, but down here it's definitely not. And it needs to start another way of, of changing the industry a little bit is making it more of a brotherhood beyond your call for, you know, your, your, uh, tour of duty. So just another idea to kind of put out there and maybe we can flesh that out a bit. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And, and I, you know, being from the Northeast, I don't remember ever seeing anything like that, but you know, funerals uh, come to mind you, you get a, a law enforcement funeral or a fire department funeral and you get firefighters, police officers from, you know, all over the country show up to this thing. And so why don't we support each other a little bit better when we retire? And if you're in, you know, if I'm down in Florida and I have my old ID on me and there's a, you know, FOP lodge, I'm a first responder. I'll go have a a beer with a couple of cops and, you know, throw some stories around and have a good time. I think it should be just that welcoming environment. Yeah, I agree completely. So hopefully as we speak, this conversation goes to the ear of someone that can make that happen or start that change and, uh, kind of turn those wheels a little bit because I think all everything, you know, we kind of covered the entire um, spectrum from starting out to retiring and after. And I think that's important because this job is all encompassing, right? You mm. there's, you know, from the Academy to retirement and after it, it takes a giant piece of you and uh, you, you definitely leave that piece um, or pieces as you go around your career. So I think it's very important and I appreciate that. Phil, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here in just a minute. I do have some final questions I want to ask you. These are kind of the uh, standard questions I ask every episode. So we're going to go ahead and give them to you and then we're going to ski down. All right. What's the best book you've read recently? Oh, so I just, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, it is a book. Uh, it, it's, it's a law enforcement book, ironically, um, it, it was a book 
oh, it was oh, it was called Sherlock or something along those lines. I forget. Uh, but it was about the first forensic scientist, and uh, he worked okay. the late uh, late eighteen hundreds into the uh, uh, early twentieth century, and things that um, CSI guys do today, uh, all that stuff. This guy invented, and he worked on some really famous cases. Um, the uh, there's a podcast Paul Holes hosts it. Um, it's called uh, Buried Bones, I believe. And he and the and the and his co-host, who is uh, I can't remember her name, which is going to drive me crazy, but she's a, a, a journalism professor out of the University of Texas. She writes about uh, late uh, late 1800s, early 1900s true crime, um, and she wrote this mm-hmm. book. And they do a podcast where they take modern forensic science and, and bring it in. But that was the last book I read, and it was phenomenal. But I, I wish I could remember the name of it. Okay, if you remember, it, let me know, and I'll put it in the show okay. notes. Um, what is something that you do to ground yourself? Oh. You know, I'll tell you, it, it sounds it sounds silly, but uh, when the weather's a little bit nicer, I take long, long walks with my dog. Um, and I just, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll put a podcast on or I'll put some music on and I have this great trail that I walk um, and I just disconnect. I turn the phone off. Um, it's that hour, hour and a half that's just, just me and my buddy walking. Um, and that's what we do. And it really just kind of keeps me centered. You know, it, I, I shut everything mm-hmm. out for just a little while. Uh, stress at work, things that are going on, even trying to make podcast deadlines. Um, but I shut it all out, and it really does keep me centered and grounded. Nice. I, I like the good long walk also. What is something that you do for self-care? Um, I, I go back to that to that walk. I do I do try and take care of myself physically. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit older than you are, and it's a little harder to lose weight these days. And, um, <laughs> you know, I get yelled at if I don't go to the doctor. But, um those are some of the things that I do. I, I try and stay physically active. You know, it was easy when I was when I was on the job to remain physically active, and since I've gotten off, it's a little bit more of a challenge. But um, I'll run in the afternoons, uh, especially now in the winter where it's cold. I'll go run on a treadmill and, and spend some time doing that. But um, I do try and uh, stay physically active to take care of myself. Okay. Would you open up an envelope with your death date written inside of it? No. I don't want to know. D- uh-huh. Yep. Wanted to be a surprise. I get you. Would you be friends with yourself? Yeah, I think I would. I think I, I think I would. Um, I pride myself on treating people really well um, and not taking things too seriously and having a good time. So yeah, I think I think I'd I'd want to be friends with myself. Uh, what sort of impact are you looking to make, and how do you make it? So I think it depends on which aspect of my life I'm I'm looking at. You know, and and from a professional standpoint, um, I want to. The the reason I took this job in West Virginia is because I recognize that there is a tremendous need for the type of programming that I offer, and I and I think I have a great opportunity to help people have a better life um, by putting them into good jobs and providing training that's reasonable, reasonably priced, uh, reasonable length of time that gets them into into jobs. So that's that's an area that I want to make. Uh, I certainly want to make an impact, and I hope to do that. You know, as I move on from this position and move on to other positions, um, I really do want to always make an impact in somebody's life. Um, and I think that's always been something that that drove me. You know, even as a young paramedic, I wanted to I wanted to make an impact in people's lives. Um, I think for my kids, I want to show them, you know, what it's like to be, you know, what a responsible adult looks like, and and how you can uh, make things better for other people, and that it's okay to care about other people. And then, you know, those are those are just some of uh, some of those things. All of them sound very good. What do you want from other people? I I think if I had to put my finger on, I, I, I want honesty from other people. Um, I think uh, I think we're too busy, uh, and it probably sounds like a cliche at this point, but we're too busy putting all the fake parts of ourselves out there 
And I like people mm-hmm. that are that are honest, that are willing to, you know, kind of reveal the cracks and the scars um, and really show me who they are. So if, honesty is what I really want from people. How do you define the word friendship? I think friendship is giving a little bit of yourself to somebody else and then taking a little bit of them in return. How do you define the word happy and what makes you happy? Hmm. Again, I think happy is uh, – well, I mean I think for me happy is uh, – I don't want to say it's that, that you know overwhelming, hilarious, laughing sort of feeling. But happy for me is, is really being comfortable. It's being content in my own skin. Um, it's uh, really being satisfied with who I am. That's what, that's what happy is for me. And um, I think the things that make me happy are being around people that are – that feel the same way, that have some happiness within them, that have things to share – I, I spend a lot of time around people that aren't happy, uh, that aren't happy with their jobs or things that are going on, or people that, that think that people are always out to get them, um, and those are mm-hmm. not really the kinds of people that I want to be around. So, um, Okay, and the last question I got for you today, what do you think is the meaning of life? Hmm. I think the meaning of life is is to find a way to leave things better than they were when, when you found them. Um, and I, and I think if we each try and make something better within our day or something better within our surroundings, then I think we're doing okay. And, and for me, that's the meaning of life. Very good. Uh, Phil, before we say goodbye, is there anything else you'd like to say to everybody or tell them where to reach your podcast and you and, and all that good stuff? Yeah. So, um, the podcast is stories from the road podcast and it's uh, first responder stories. So we're on all the major podcasts platforms uh if anybody wants to reach out to me stories from the road podcast at gmail.com is probably the easiest way to do it um i meant what i said we'll we'll go out and teach those mental health uh mental health classes and uh mental health resiliency officer classes anywhere across the country we can do it remote and we are glad to do it we'll make it as cost effective as we possibly can um that's a nice thing about my my professional life outside of podcasting is uh we can deliver programs as a nonprofit uh college for very reasonable prices to help get people trained. So uh, I'm glad to do that. Anybody listening can reach out and I'll be glad to have a conversation with them. But those are the ways to get in touch with me and uh swing by, listen to the podcast. Uh season four, episode four was a pretty good one. You might remember that one. So the obviously your ability to have the nonprofit and then provide training is so pivotal and i think it's also kind of rare so hopefully if anyone needs information go ahead and hit up phil i will tag him in the post and um you know get some people out there and like i said i'm gonna i'm gonna be hitting you up about it as well so um all that being said phil thank you so much for the conversation thanks for the insight and thanks for keeping the chili warm we really appreciate that as well (laughs) you know can i can i tell you one quick story since you're picking on me I know uh, we're go probably ahead. going over time here, but no, so good. we were on this call and, and where I worked in, in Georgia, we worked in, uh, we worked with the Lawrenceville police officers and they were a small town. Lawrenceville is the, the, the claim to fame is that the courthouse where Larry Flint was shot was in Lawrenceville. And I was right around the corner from my firehouse. So we're on, uh, but these cops took, I mean, they took phenomenal care of us. Like the county guys wouldn't shut down a road. If we had an auto accident, the Lawrenceville cops would shut like both lanes down, both directions, <laughs> route people through a parking lot. They didn't care. They were taking care of us. So we're out one night and we, we get a, a domestic and the husband's outside and the wife's inside. And I'm like two feet from the door with my partner. And he's taking some vital signs and the girl's father shows up. 
And uh, he tries to get into the house, and the officer's like, no, 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 you're not going to go in there. And he, I don't know, he pushed him or something. So they push him down, right? So he's he's on his back in the doorway. They tase him. They hit him one time. Bam, tase him. And we're, we're like two feet away. So we're watching this go down. They hit him, and they start yelling at him, roll over, roll over. And it's a tiny doorway, and this guy's big, and he can't get rolled over. So the sergeant yells, hit him again, and they tase him a second time, right? And, and he's like, I'm trying, I'm trying. He finally he makes it on it, and, and I don't know, he tries to get up or something. They say, hit him again, and they tase him three times. They finally get this guy cuffed in the back of the car, and I walk up to the sergeant. I'm like, listen, not for nothing, but why'd you hit him three times? And he goes, because you guys love that. And he was, he was right. We, got, we were <laughs> laughing. We, we had a great time. But those, those guys took phenomenal care of us. Um, and we returned the favor by cutting them out of their cars when they when they chase people. So we always nice. had a great relationship with the officers. And even though we kid and we give each other a hard time, at the end of the day, we're all on the same team, and that's what really matters. Absolutely. I'm going to give you one joke. I might have to edit this out because it's definitely not um, not uh, politically correct, especially in this day and age. But it's a cop joke for you. So cop is you know working the road, and he sees a guy roll through a stop sign, and he keeps driving. So he gets pulled over, and he goes, hey, man, uh, you need to stop for that stop sign. I was like, well, I, I I slowed down for it, and I kept going. He goes, no, 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 it's a stop sign. You need to stop for it. You can't roll through. He goes, but I slowed down. Cop gets pissed, pulls him out of the car, and just starts beating him with his nightstick. Just starts hitting the guy. Hitting the guy. He's like, ah, stop, stop, stop. He goes, do you want me to stop or do you want me to slow down? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> All that being said, Phil, uh, I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything. And uh, hey, if you're ever in Florida, beers on me. We got it. Absolutely, I'll come. I'll come find you. Awesome. All right, everyone listening, stay tuned. We'll wrap it up. And uh, Phil, thanks again. We'll talk soon. Great. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, rather. Yeah. yeah. And once again, a special thanks to Phil. Go check out his show. Again, Stories from the Road on all major streaming platforms. So as we conclude today's episode, I want to talk about the negative side of peer support, or rather the lack thereof of peer support. You know, uh, I've been on social media for a while now. In the last few years, I've really started honing in on this whole law enforcement and first responder wellness thing. And I've made a lot of great, amazing connections. Some folks and organizations that really are just made of the best people on earth. Many of which that have been or will be on the show. Truly stand out and exemplary souls. Um, while this is not an all-inclusive all list, some of them that need to be spoken of are the Resiliency Project, Reps for Responders, Project Refit, uh, and the former Project 109 as well as individuals like Tom Rizzo, Aaron Lohman, and the list just goes on and on. They're all amazing individuals, amazing organizations who really want the best for those in our line of work. And then there's the other side. Listen, some of you motherfuckers claim to be this pro-mental health, safe space, whatever, and you use it to villainize people. Or you personify this terrible shit that is literally killing those in our profession. Now, there are some of you still just trying to figure this all out. And you make your mistakes, and you post out of pocket, and you own up for it when you screw up. And I'm included. I'm in that one. I'm not perfect. I'm still figuring this all out. But there are literally people out there 
that will say that they care so much for those around them and they want nothing but to help people and, you know, come talk to me and blah, 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 blah. But then they would literally spend their entire tour of duty bad-mouthing every single person that came into them. How, how do we build this trust? I said in the beginning, you know, do you trust the people in your peer support? And if you say no, then why? You know, for me, I understand that people at my agency don't trust me because they don't know me. I'm the new guy. I'm the new guy that was on the road and went straight to dispatch. And, you know, when you're in the bunker, no one really comes to say hi. So why should they? I understand that. They don't know my story. They don't know why this is important to me. And that's fine. That's on me to show them my why. You know, uh, don't talk about it. Be about it. Right. Fine. That's fine. A lot of you guys, right, you came up in that agency and you know the people and you look at the list and go, these are the people I'm going to talk to? These guys? They're the biggest drama queens, the biggest gossips. This is, I'm not touching it, right? We need to be better. We need to be better. If, I have a bunch of memes that I've made frustrated about this topic and I haven't even posted a lot of them, but I posted some of them. Like, I have one that I'm going to be posting and it's, if I'm your friend off-duty then don't talk shit about me on duty, right? Don't air my laundry out. If I come to vent to you, you know, in the Florida law, it says it will remain confidential unless something, you know, someone's going to get hurt or anything like that. But there are people, and, you know, I've talked to people who are on peer support teams and like, hey, I can't talk to that guy. You know, he, one reason or another, he's got the, you know, a direct line to the chief, blah, blah, blah. We have to be better. No one ever anywhere is going to talk to anybody if you if they can't trust them the whole thing with peer support is trust we need to be better whether you are an online platform whether you are just in your department's public uh peer support or if you're just someone in the department that people feel comfortable talking to you need to respect that you need to give these people someone they can trust we need to be better now not everyone has to be a mental health peer support figure, whatever. But in that case, don't add to the problem either. We're always talking about being better, you know. Uh, again, there's there's a big line between venting frustrations and just being the department gossip. Okay, um, I really feel like on Instagram we've we're just this giant police department at this point, and we all kind of. BS and whatever and a lot of it's good don't get me wrong a lot of it's good but a lot of it is fucking toxic man and we gotta be better we gotta be better listen I know that I can't single handedly change the whole culture of law enforcement and mental health and all that I know that single handedly I cannot do that but I can bully it I can make memes I can joke about it I can shine a light on it until it slowly starts to change. Like I said, if every episode like this is just a rock in the pond that creates another ripple effect, I'm okay with doing that. But I need you guys, you listeners, to take this and run with it. You know, if you know of people you don't trust in peer support, talk to someone to change it. Nothing changes if nothing changes. If you don't say that there's a problem, how's anyone going to know there's a problem? You can't just assume that, oh, this uh, this sergeant, this lieutenant knows that this guy's a piece of shit. Maybe they don't. Maybe they have no idea. This guy reached out and said, hey, I want to be on peer support. And they said, okay, you're on it. Right? What kind of vetting process is there? Depends department to department. So just think about that. Next week on the show, we start a little mini-series. Uh, we focus on cops and former cops that now... Uh, own their own small business and they're killing it. 
they are making money, which is so important. You know, when I started this season, I said that we were going to focus on physical, mental, and financial health and wellness. And it's so hard to talk finance because, you know, you end up talking money and it's not the most exciting of topics, right? Um, But I figured a good way to talk about financial wellness was to talk to some folks who make good money following their passion and and making projects out of it. My first guest is Nick Tuttle. He's the founder of The Mic Loop. I'm sure you guys have all seen either his videos or just the the product itself. Um, We talk about his career, his business, and his journey with his own mental health. It's really a top-notch episode, and there are just more are going to keep coming and coming. So until then, please check out my new page, which is 108 underscore eat to talk about passion projects. Nothing to do about law enforcement except it's geared to you guys, but uh, it's just food. If you guys like food content, go check it out, 108 underscore eats. Uh, you can also check out our merch store, 10-8-memes.ecwid.com. I've got new uh, t-shirts, stickers, whole bunch of swag in there. Take a look at it. If you buy any of the um, Lil Homie stickers or the Jason Rayner stickers, 100% of all proceeds go to various charities um, picked by the family, the surviving family. So definitely want to check that out. This weekend coming up, I am flying to Pennsylvania to spend some time with um, some great people. Some absolute warriors with Project Refit. Um, It's going to be a weekend in the mountains just bonding with other fellow and former first responders. It's going to be amazing. I'm excited. Can't wait for it. And I will definitely be reporting back uh, about my travels. We'll see if I take videos or whatever. I can make a little post about it. Also next week, I will be conducting uh, three interviews for upcoming episodes, one of which is actually the season premiere for season four of the podcast. I know. I'm only planning ahead, right? Which is crazy because... For my weekly episodes, I'm actually kind of behind on recording and editing, but whatever. Um, I was so lucky to get this guest that I just wanted, I I needed to use this to kick off next season. And the guest is Dr. John Deloney. If you don't know who he is, go check him out. Dr. John Deloney, D-E-L-O-N-Y. I'm so excited for that episode to come up. So all that being said, guys, once again, I want to reiterate that I am still here making content, spreading my message because of you. Every last one of you listening, you're the reason that 10-8 is still a thing, okay? Uh, And as we proceed to give you what you need, it is all because of you. All the growth, everything. We are a small little pocket here. We, We, you know... I don't have the big numbers. I mean, I have decent numbers, absolutely, but, you know, I don't have definitely the the uh, overhead, the production overhead. It's literally me sitting in an empty bedroom right now. And so everything that I've got, everything that the whole line of where this is all gone and where it's going to go is because of you. If you're listening, it's because of you. And, you know, sometimes I look at the numbers and I may I may be in a never-ending battle with the social media guys, but we are still growing and this is all grassroots and I couldn't be more proud of the community that we have here. Um, so I just wanted to take a moment and thank every last one of you. Can't do it specific, or individually, but um, this is an overwhelming, over uh, a broad, painting with a broad brush, I guess is the right thing to say. It's 3.30 in the morning here. I'm a little tired. Um Thank you very much. I appreciate everything you guys have done and continue to do to get the word out. So I'm continuing to ask you, please uh, spread it, (laughs) spread it like a disease, if you know what I'm saying. 
The music for today's show is provided, as always, by Jeff Smith. We talked about him. And our ending song is the brand new song by the band Keep Flying called Left Behind. Literally, this song came out this past week. Enjoy it. Listen to it. Listen to it again. Go on Spotify. Keep listening to it. And go follow them on Instagram. One word, Keep Flying Band. And if they're in in your area, go see them because they are an amazing live show. Until next week, friends, take care of each other and stay safe. 10-8. Out.